Welcome back to the Break Magazine podcast. This is episode nine, and today we are talking about the process that companies go through when they design motorcycle clothing, the challenges that they have, the hurdles that they have to overcome, and some of the ethos behind the decisions that they make. Things like why clothing is sized the way it's sized, the materials they use, how they make all those decisions, and so on. Our guest this week is a chap called Rod McIntyre. Uh, he works for Revit in Holland and is part of their design department and has helped design some of the new collections that you might have seen from their off-road based dirt collection to some a lot of the other adventure based products this is an awesome podcast i had a super good time recording it it's really really interesting subjects especially as someone that gets to wear a lot of different types of kit and quite fortunately be relatively fussy about what i use and why i use it and learn what works and what doesn't work i hope you enjoy this podcast as much as i enjoyed asking all these questions and diving into this subject is something that i just find infinitely fascinating because of how complicated it is and how difficult it is and how much we need motorcycle kit to make the experience of riding more comfortable better and safer without i don't really have anything else to say for this intro so without further ado i hope you enjoy and uh yeah i'll see you for the next one welcome to the podcast um it's a uh, it's pretty exciting to have you here really um there's not many people i know that do what you do so yeah. uh, to kind of go into the whole world of kit design is something especially as a, a journalist who's worn a lot of different kit over the year for me has been like quite an exciting conversation to have yeah. Yeah. um so before we dive into uh any of the kind of details of how you go about producing kit um can you run us through the process of how you became a motorbike clothing designer? <laughs> well, for, I mean, first of all, it goes without saying, thank you for having us on here because it's a nice opportunity to speak to you and share these things because normally like, we, we know what we do kind of goes on a little bit in the background. Yeah. So, and we know also how nice it is even for, for, for us to be able to kind of sit here and tell some stories from a design department, designer perspective, rather than, um, it always coming through, you know, a website or like a brand video. So yeah, this is yeah. a nice, this is nice for us to sit here. So thanks for that. And it's also been cool over this past kind of six months, year, just kind of chatting loads of gear ideas with you, you know, with uh, yeah. developing some some exciting stuff for the future. So no, thank you for having us. Um, yeah, my, uh, how did I become a motorcycle clothing designer? So it's, it's a good question. I sometimes ask myself how I got here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been. It, it all sort of started for me with product design. So I think from, you know, as early as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a designer. And and then around, you know, even earlier, a product designer, because I, I was always thinking with things. I think probably everybody that is a designer can remember at a very early age, just enjoying making and doing and creating things. So that's something that I've always had. And I went and studied product design at Glasgow School of Art. So in Scotland. And that was uh, that was four years of just a lot of fun and really learning about design um, and then walking away from that with my degree in product design and sort of knowing before I graduated that I wanted to kind of go down the clothing route. But I wasn't very sure what that route was going to be, because I think um, at the time, my idea of clothing design was much more orientated around maybe more fast fashion. Um, 
but then you know very quickly i realized that all the stuff i was using gear wise for all of those outdoor sports especially growing up in scotland um was orientated as much around product design as it was around clothing design so i was like you know the light bulb moment of hey i could combine those two things into some kind of career so i think it sort of started there um and i was lucky enough to um get a job at gore-tex so when I graduated, I went straight into Gore-Tex and that was because um, Gore-Tex was very close to where I lived in Scotland. Their, their kind of European, one of their European HQs was, uh, and still is, is um, located in Livingston, just outside of, outside of Edinburgh. So I got an opportunity to work there and I, I was a junior designer and got exposed to so much, got exposed to loads of different consumer categories and then started to understand um, more in depth what kind of clothing design was in a more technical sense. So suddenly realizing again that that stuff that I would go snowboarding in um, was designed by kind of scientists, engineers, product designers, marketeers, everyone was involved in sort of creating this final product and this story. So um, yeah, that was kind of the, the, the moment where I, I decided that was, that was the career path I was going to take. And sort of between then and now, I've jumped around all sorts of consumer categories. I've done snow sports, outdoor, um, I've done mountaineering gear. And then I kind of started to dabble in, in motorcycle about probably about six or seven years ago and realized that that was kind of like um, the ultimate when it came to product design and clothing design, because, you know, the, the amount of heavy product design you have to put into creating gear that really works on a bike um, was what interested me. And then um, I, I spent, uh, well, I spent, uh, so I've spent a couple of years in Scotland, then I moved down to London. I spent four years in London working for a design agency there. Then I moved from there to Barcelona, which was cool. Lived in Barcelona for about four years and I worked for a, a design office that was very, very connected to Gore-Tex. So that wasn't for Gore-Tex themselves, but it was a design agency that did a lot of their conceptual stuff for Gore-Tex. And then from Barcelona, moved to the Netherlands and landed here at Revit. And um, yeah, I think the, I, I, I met um, Gerbrandt, who's the creative director here, and just had a really inspiring uh, interview and conversation with him about all the possibilities around motorcycle clothing design. And because my background was more orientated to snow sports and outdoor, it seemed like a really nice mix. And yeah, I got offered a role here as a product designer and yeah, that's where I'm at now. So kind of the rest is, is, is history in that sense. And some of the gear that's coming out now is definitely a result of, um, you know, our design department embracing that kind of new direction we want to take with regards to kind of combinations of, of sports wear in a sense. I think so, that's, yeah. it, this is quite interesting, actually, because I, I like I don't really I don't think I've told you this and I, I don't really talk about it much. But when I was like uh, in college and kind of going through that process at the end of doing my A-levels of deciding what yeah. I wanted to do in my life, like I was in a really similar position. I, I was really into like fashion and sportswear design when I was in college. Yeah. So I did like a bunch of my modules on that in graphic when I did a graphic design A-level. And then I like came really close to going to fashion school to do photography. Mm. Um, oh, cool. And it's just, it's always something that's really interested me. And like, like you said, when it comes to uh, motorcycle clothing and, mm. and a lot of the other sports I do, you kind of start to notice these, these gaps where they get truncated almost in a certain direction. Mm. But when, when we, like one of the things that really interests me is like when your time at Gore-Tex, mm -hmm. when, when it comes to 
a company like Gore-Tex, it, they're generally a pretty fascinating brand. Like they are mm. head and shoulders, the market leader in what they do. Like there is no one else that kind of seems to come close in producing waterproof, breathable clothing. So mm. how, like, how do they do that? And how do they make sure it always works across all those different sports? Like if you go skiing, Gore-Tex mm. is like the standard right? Mm. Everybody, it's always the most expensive. It's always the one that everyone's like, if you're backcountry and you need protecting, you buy Gore-Tex. It's the same mm. on a motorbike. It's the same when you go walking. How, how do they go about maintaining that standard across the whole process? Well, I think that, I mean, they're, they're top tier in one way. So their, their products are generally expensive. Um, so we know that the products that are expensive, normally you're, you're buying into, um, a lot of background research and knowledge and design. And I think with uh, Gore-Tex, they, they are primarily sort of engineers and scientists. So uh, m most, if not all, of the products that have the stamp Gore-Tex on it have been designed by a brand rather than Gore-Tex themselves. So Gore-Tex mm -hmm. is seen as a brand by consumers because they are they are so powerful in that sense because they're, they're present in so many different categories. But essentially, WL Gore, um, are manufacturers of fabric, laminated okay. fabric. So like DuPont or someone. Exactly. And, and, and what happens is um, you, you typically see, if you see the actual clothing design innovation, that's coming from brands themselves. So, um, you know, it, it, whether it's outdoor, snow sports, motorcycle, whatever it is, um, there's a collaboration between Gore and that brand. Mm -hmm. um, when you have internal, Gore have a couple of vertical businesses. So I think they've got Gore running wear and Gore cycling. So you have a team of designers that are designing clothing around that. But my time in Gore was much more on a conceptual basis. So what um, you have to build up as a brand, a lot of internal knowledge on how to build product in a, in a way that meets the strict demands of Gore-Tex or WL Gore. Because when you, when you design with Gore-Tex, you literally have like, a manual like this okay and it's like so they tell you how to it's going to be done basically they 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 are very strict on on the way seam taping is applied the width of seam tape you can use in a certain category for example they have a global catalog of fabrics but um not all fabrics are available to everybody because okay. we know okay. if you're riding a motorcycle and you're riding a trail and you've got a branch brushing across you more of the lightweight products that gore-tex have laminates that they have will get torn very easily because they're more suitable for mountain running or yeah. or kind of um, a more lightweight orientated sport. So they're very, very, very strict. And the timelines for building and designing a Gore-Tex product are much longer. You have to have more samples. You have to have the products internally approved by Gore. So you literally send your prototype to Gore-Tex and they're like, yes or no. You stand in rain rooms with them and you look at where the products may be leaking. So there's a, there's a collaboration there. So they're very strict in that sense. So the engineering and kind of scientific perspective aspect is coming from Gore. Um, and then you build knowledge internally as a brand. I think another important thing to note is that Gore is one of the few uh, laminate for fabric suppliers that also certifies a factory. So when you have a Gore-Tex product made, you have it made in a certified Gore-Tex factory on certified Gore-Tex machinery which means that um, the people that are stitching, seam taping, building these products are very, very knowledgeable because they've had Gore come into the factory, teach them how to build these products, teach them how to use the machines, in some cases supply the machine, the correct machines. And then 
um, as a result, you're working with a very kind of high-end partner. So what comes out of the machine at the other end is a product that lasts and is, is durable. So tape doesn't fall off and you can be sure that that thing stays waterproof. So mm -hmm. it's really because Gore is super strict with what you can and cannot do and where you can make your product is, I think is what's adding to the durability factor of these things. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's where you start to end up with the kind of inflated cost because they're putting in so much work behind the scenes that adds to that product cost essentially. Yeah, you're buying, you're, you're, you're buying good product design and you're buying, um, you're buying high-end laminates, you're buying guarantees for waterproofing um, you know, 25,000 millimeter water column, you know, mm -hmm. 25,000 um, breathability, you know, all these things are, everything is just a notch higher mm -hmm. uh, when, when you're buying from Gore-Tex. So yeah, that's why it's seen as a top tier product. And that's why it is typically more expensive. So in your, in your experience as a product designer, is something like mm -hmm. Gore-Tex noticeably better at its job than other products that are in a similar category, say something that's like a, a like a, a, obviously we're both into like snowboarding and skiing and mm. like my ski jacket's a mid-range Helly Hansen jacket. I think it's rated at like 14,000 millimeters. So mm. is the difference between that and a Gore-Tex product like something you can genuinely notice or is it once it's past a certain point, it's kind of, it's all good. Yeah, I th it's, it's really down to the end consumer and what they use. You know, I think, I think uh, there's, there's this constant need to have the best you know it's if you if you buy a car uh, what's what's its top speed even mm -hmm. though you probably will never use that top speed mm -hmm. i think um there is this there, there's something nice about buying a product to know that you, you you know the promise that you can go and do this you know so with um with any laminate fabric you make decisions on on what laminate you use based on the end use and the environment it'll be used in you know if if for example you know, just in our collection alone, you can see that the majority of our Gore-Tex products are within uh, a collection that is got uh, heavy road use mm -hmm. because road use, you get high water pressure. So if you're sitting on the highway for eight hours in heavy rain, you know, if you've not got a laminate that's 25,000 millimeters uh, waterproofing, you'll get water ingress through that membrane because it's just the pressure is just too high. Mm -hmm. So that's why we use Gore-Tex in those sorts of environments. Whereas if you think of a more lightweight application like um, uh, off-road, like the picture that's, that's behind us on the screen, that water pressure is lower because you're riding slower speeds on trails. Maybe your road sections are getting between trails, lower speeds because your bikes are lighter. So you're not going to have the same level of, wa um, of, of uh, water pressure. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you can afford to use not a, not a worse laminate, just one that's maybe not specced as high. And then you get a, you get a more cost-effective jacket that's better orientated around the end consumer. So it's really about what you use. If you've got Gore-Tex Pro, that's designed for like high, high altitude mountaineering where you're going to be encountering some seriously bad weather where to the point that gear becomes almost like a piece of survival equipment. Yeah. If it fails, you're in trouble. So that's why you have that high cost. So it's really down to you as a consumer. What do you want? Your breathability, you know, that's that's in in line with how active you are. Technically, if you sit on a bike, not barely moving, breathability, the need for high breathability laminate, it becomes less. The more active you are, the more breathability you become. So you need. So it's it's really down to the end consumer in in, in the end and and what they what they what they want to do. 
that's probably the the best explanation of that I've ever heard of. I've never read anyone kind of explain it in that way of almost of of, of yeah the nuances of, of what those waterproof membranes do. Um, yeah. So when when it comes to producing like genuinely waterproof garments, I, I again like I've had a a million different types over the years from waterproof jackets to that work really really well to ones mm. that don't things that leak immediately from the second you own them um, yeah so what what makes producing a waterproof garment like that so difficult what what are like we missing at the end as an end user i, I think i think it's um doing something for the first time is always difficult and then you get into a rhythm and you have solutions so i think um once you've established some some good construction techniques and, uh, and an understanding of the, the correct pattern for a certain rider type, for example, then you get into a flow. So establishing um, products for new target customer groups, that, that's, that's going to be harder because you're, you're having to sort of build upon existing knowledge. You're going to have to kind of establish new knowledge. But I think one of the hardest things with laminate or waterproof products, we say laminate products like hard shells, basically, is I think making it comfortable and climate adaptable. Um, if you if you wrap your body in something that is preventing water coming in, there's going to be um, a compromise there. You know, you you can only you can only let out so much sweat out of a product, or so much um, hot air out of a, out of a, like a kind of a microclimate that you that you've got going underneath your jacket. Um, so there's always going to be a compromise. So we try and then enhance that with things like ventilations, mm-hmm. and having an opening that allows air when open to flow through a garment in an effective way. And then when you close that zip, making sure there are no water passes in is really, really difficult because you typically have to have multiple layers. You have to have water barriers and all these things. And all these things that make it waterproof also impact letting the air in even when it's open. So that's when you kind of really have to be smart around your construction. So I think one of the hardest things with making waterproof garments um, isn't necessarily making it waterproof, it's making it comfortable, mm-hmm. I would say. And then when you're riding in a garment that's comfortable and it's waterproof, you're like, okay, they, they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you're not riding in like the 1950s Mac where it's just like straight plastic. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because you, you are, sometimes you kind of joke, um, you know, in some cases, you might as well just not bother wearing a waterproof jacket at all. Mm. Because it's you're going to be sweating so much, yeah, yeah, you're exactly. then so wet on the inside that actually, and if you're riding in, I don't know, and kind of, if you're kind of in Asia and you've got kind of, you know, humidity is super high, warmth is super high, well, you might as well just forget wearing a waterproof jacket yeah. because you come out the other side and you might find you, your garment dry. So then you start thinking, well, maybe waterproofing isn't the best there. It's about quick drying. So yeah, it's really about comfort. So yeah, with waterproof garments, also with seam taping. I mean, you 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 have. Um, if you look at a jacket that's not um, a hard shell, so it's not a laminate seam mm-hmm. tape product, there's a lot more freedom in design in that sense because every hole you make in a waterproof jacket or a laminate jacket, you have to kind of tape or block. And then, you, so you try to be very smart between making sure it's functional and it looks good. You're trying to balance that performance and design stuff all the time. And then, uh, and then you add seam tape and seam tape makes it stiff because you know, you're rolling seams and you're adding seam tape. So you then think, well, where can I place the seams in a smart way? So I have flexibility. Then you think, well, if you place them in the wrong place, then you're going to have like 
mechanical movement over time and the tape's going to get maybe damaged. So there's so many different things to consider. So yeah, it's making it comfortable and durable. That's the, that's the real challenge with so, making waterproof garments. Um, yeah, that's kind of uh, one of the other things that I think I've started to notice quite a lot in the last few years. And this is maybe a bit more from mountain biking stuff is yeah. people starting to add and I, I suppose my question is how much difference does this make to the actual waterproofing, but starting to add like a durable water repellent coating to garments. So like a few years ago, Fox added it to mm. their Legion line, like all their Legion kit came mm. with this DWR coating, but it lasts like two rides. Right. And then you have to re mm. wax it because, mm. but ha as far as I understand, like all waterproof garments have that as well. So how much is that part of the package? Like this kind of hydrophobic coating? The, I mean, the hydrophobic coating, the DWR, so durable water repellency, is is super important because what it does is it it stops the garment from getting um, the face fabric from getting saturated. So what what you have basically is you have um, if you talk about a three layer product, so the one the jacket, the your ski jacket, your, the you open up and you see all the seam tape and it's like a more grey color. You have a an outer knitted fabric. So let's say that's the abrasion resistant mm -hmm. layer then behind that you have laminated or glued to the inside you have a membrane which in the case of Gore-Tex is always it's white mm -hmm. um, or pack light is like a carbon color and then you have on the inside of there um, typically for the more durable waterproof fabrics you have the inner knitted fabric um, so you get a, a three-layer sandwich if you have a two-layer you don't have that inner knitted fabric it's mm -hmm. just the bare membrane on the inside but you don't normally see that because you have a, a drop lining inside a garment. So with those, with those layers, um, that outer layer is essentially um, soaking up water. So if you have a jacket and you're riding for a long time and that outer layer of fabric starts to get, um, starts to wet out, we call it, you start to get a heavier garment. So mm -hmm. in more performance activities, like let's say mountain running, you are adding weight to your total setup, which of course, when you talk about the, 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 the precise times of, of these sorts of things, you know, any extra weight is considered a disadvantage. So you have water saturation and also you get um, it gets colder because you're you're then able, the, the fabric then transmits from the outside to the inside quicker and um, cold. Mm -hmm. So you start to feel cold. So sometimes when people are wearing waterproof jackets, they say, um, I feel wet on the inside. It's not, you, you're just feeling cold. You're feeling cold rather than wet. Typically, if you put your hand on the inside, it's dry. Yeah. So um, what that DWR does is it creates a, um, a coating on, on that outer, outer woven fabric that prevents the water from soaking in. And it keeps you technically warmer and it also keeps the jacket more lightweight. But it also, in the case of, for example, uh, motorsports, it stops it from uh, any oil ingress or anything like that because we know that riding on the roads or riding on trails, yeah. sometimes you can pick up there. So basically, it's, it's, it's creating another barrier. The reason that stuff washes off is because it's literally a sprayed-on coating. Mm -hmm. and, but you can reactivate it by, for example, putting your jacket in a tumble dryer, or you can um, have a wash, a Nick Wax wash, and then you can put it in a tumble dryer after. So you can reactivate it. But it essentially doesn't <clears throat> make the garment any more waterproof. It just makes it more durably waterproof, okay, which is yeah, one of the big differences. Yeah, and then that's in the, uh, in the title, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> DWR. So, exactly. Exactly. Um, 
obviously we've talked a lot there about gore and your time there, but I think one of the things when we first started talking in general was about the point where you were planning to release your new dirt collection. Uh, yeah. and I remember when you showed me, uh, the, the kind of first pictures of it, I was like, where has this been for the last kind of 20 years? And it's a conversation I've had a lot with the people around me in that, uh, I always find it really interesting that motorcycle clothing is is relatively stagnant like mostly people do the same thing again and again and you get small innovations but they quite often just slip under the radar and then everyone goes back to the same shapes mm. and the same kind of mm. relative products and I, I think even in the revit collection there's a little bit of that you know the adventure gear is there's a few innovations here and there but for most part kit is kit and whether it's done well is in the details the dirt collection is like completely different the whole uh, design of the jackets and so on is really really creative and it kind of in me sparked this idea of of trying to understand how that process comes about how do you go mm. from mm. making jackets one way to going all the way to the right and making a dirt bike jacket that's got like a smock with a three-quarter zip and a big front pocket and things that are in reality probably actually really really useful and really nice products mm. to, to wear what what's the first step that you you get to where you're like okay we're gonna go that way how do you how do you get there how do you get um, there? yeah it's I, I mean a collection like dirt is born out of several things it's kind of lots of things aligning at the right time um i think first and foremost i think it's about observation i think i think as a i think as a brand uh, certainly ourselves we we're we have like a keen eye on the way the world is evolving and especially how our rider types are evolving so so sort of to give you an understanding of how we do this you probably need to think about it in 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 the case of rider types so we have several rider types that are that are orientated around motivations for example so um let's say i want to go exploring well i'll go to revit and i'll find uh, gear within their adventure segment mm -hmm. so you have within that you have several um rider types you have your your classic ones like uh, adventure travel adventure tour adventure sport um all these segments and um each one of those um segments have products in there that are um, defined by you know the past the present and the future and you then um start to think well how would we want our adventure collection to evolve so you start to ask yourself questions you start to say okay well, well, what's happening in the world of, of adventure writing so for us we started to just like really open our eyes up to the way things were going within adventure and we started to realize that you have uh, brands uh, that bike brands that are bringing lighter weight uh, off-road bikes. There's a tr there was a, there's a trend and there's a move towards lighter weight bikes. So that drives um, where people can go, what sort of terrain they can go on, and what sort of clothing they wear. And you start to uh, react internally to to those sorts of things, and you start to say, well, how do we want to react as a brand to this new kind of movement of lighter weight? Um, lightweight riders and you start well okay i think what we'll do is we'll make um a segmentation called off-road which up until now has been products like the sand um or uh the the, the dominator or mm -hmm. maybe the, not so much the beside and that's more of that's more of a tour garment but I suppose those like were the, like the off track, track as well is like a... the off track yeah, yeah. thing products like that 
then you say, well, we want to make another, we want to make a collection that's even more kind of um, advanced than that. And you start to look at what writers are essentially doing and you see, you start to pay attention to writing. You say, well, actually what these people are doing, these writers are doing, is they're buying from three different segments. They're buying um, motorcycle clothing because it's just really durable and robust. Mm-hmm. They're buying MX gear because it's patterned in a good way and it's uh, maybe a bit lighter. And they're also buying outdoor gear. They're buying a, a ski, snowboard jackets as outer shells. They're trying to find solutions from multiple different categories. And, as, and when you start to observe those changes, you start to say, well, how can you react to that? And in the end, what you do is you react to it in the way, and in our case, we've reacted in the way with dirt. So we've realized that actually it's about layering, it's about modularity. It's about um, outer shells. It's just, it's about flexibility, climate. It's, it's all these different things blended into one to create essentially the dirt, dirt collection. So how, uh, obviously, the, like, like you've talked about there, the process of producing that kit is it, quite different to what you've been doing before yeah. with how you make like adventure kit. Obviously, adventure kit is not massively different to touring kit, which is not massively mm. different to like your standard yeah. textile yeah. road kit. But then all of a sudden, you've like turned right, you've gone in a completely different direction. So what, what was the most challenging part of producing that whole collection of rider equipment i suppose is the word yeah Yeah, i did i think it's there's 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 there in reality is a lot of challenges i think what's nice about what we've done is we've said that if we're going to launch a collection for off-road use we want to um make a clear statement as to who we are and want to be within that world of off-road. Because as we know, all of these rider types are fairly saturated with products and brands. So if you're going to do something, you want to do it in your way and and make a kind of um, a bold statement as to what you believe is right for that segment. And we approach approach something like off-road from the perspective of exploring. And when when you take that into mind, you start to think, well, we are more, um, we are heavily influenced by um, the more outdoor nature of that type of category. So that then drives decisions on color and product design, which is why you see um, our collection is heavily influenced by basically the world of outdoor clothing. Mm-hmm. And you, you, um, you make it, yeah, you basically make a decision as to who you want to be in, in that segment. And you are making a bold step away from the kind of the status quo. So what you have to do is you have to, the hardest part is you have to align internally first. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges. You're, you're aligning a lot of people internally before you even, before this, these ideas even get, even get to the outside world. I mean, we, we've been exploring this kind of off-road collection for years now. We've had internal launches and prototypes to kind of see how it resonates with senior account managers. We've got a couple of products that are already in the market, like, for example, um, a couple of urban products. We've got a, an adventure product, the Ridge jacket, which mm-hmm. was like a really, really clean approach to um, kind of adventure travel, adventure tour to see how that gets picked up and to see if people are willing to spend essentially quite a lot of money on something that is very minimal. Because one of the biggest barriers, I think, within motorcycle is that there, you often need to get a lot for your money visually. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you approach dirt, you, you are buying something that's very clean and minimal, which is still a relatively new concept within the world of motorcycles. So you have to go through a lot of barriers in the beginning just to to get to even the point where you're ready to show something to the outside world. Yeah. 
I've got the Ridge jacket here as well. I'll see if I can yeah. add it into this uh, so people can see. Apparently, I cannot yeah. do that. I am too clumsy. <laughs> the Ridge jacket. The Ridge jacket was an interesting one because it it is super super clean, but it's incredibly functional. And all of the the details within that jacket, all the functional details, are kind of hidden away in a more minimal way. Yeah. Yet it is it is still the only thing that takes it away from being a more travel orientated pocket is. Um, product is the size of the pockets basically you just okay. have a little bit less storage so if you were to patch on some big pockets on there you'd have something that was pretty good for travel as well you know uh, I, yeah it kind of always blows my mind how much there is for, for you to think about with all of that stuff really um yeah, you, uh, you know sometimes i think especially as a motorcycle uh tester person like we see the end product it's really easy to to kind of use something and go why did you do that why don't you just do this and, and mm. you know i the more we talk about this the more it kind of there's so much to think about across all those segments and i always obviously only see it with that tiny lens i've had this same conversation uh in similar ways with like people that are producing bikes and parts yeah. and so on yeah. where it's always like there's so much to think about when you go through that process of product design um, yeah, one of the other things that really struck me, and you've touched on this a little bit already, um, when I looked through that Dirt collection and, and when we started talking about doing this podcast, I, I kind of went and had a look through all the product list and I was like, there's a bunch of things in there that really stand out as like products that have come potentially from other markets. I think one of them is the Scram knee pad. Like as yeah. soon as I saw that, I was like, that's completely different to how everyone else is making off-road knee protection it looks like a mountain bike piece it looks almost mm. identical to the mountain bike knee guard i've got and that makes perfect sense because they work really well like i can pedal mm -hmm. in them all day and they don't fall down mm -hmm. but my yeah. knee protection on my bike not so good do you know yeah um, yeah why do you think that your like revit is the company that's trying those things even you know we talked a little bit before about fox like fox are a heavily mountain bike focused company mm. And yet they don't have those crossover products. They make one set of products over here, another set of products over there. And there's mm. like very little uh, crossover apart from mm. a couple of materials that have started to pop up. So why do you think you're the company that are making that leap and other companies aren't? It's, it's hard to say why other companies aren't. You know, we could be sitting here now and, and other companies have something to launch, you know, for fall, winter or spring, summer next year. You just don't know what's going on in behind closed doors. But I think um, I think one of the important things is to know where worlds cross over and different categories blend together. Because if you really create a scale, you start to see where you can start to have things influence each other. I, I think as a brand, we've we've always questioned the status quo. I think it's just it's just in in our DNA. We we place design, performance, and innovation. Um, at the center of everything we do. So I think this mindset supports that more that kind of trailblazer attitude. So in that sense, if you place, if you have design placed at the center of your organization, then those slightly kind of maverick ideas are gonna gain traction much quicker because people are supportive of it because they appreciate the power of good design. Um, I think we also, we're also very good at um, looking over the fence and not being kind of having the blinkers on we're like we're like this all the time just really like soaking the world up and understanding um where we can be inspired or find solutions outside of the world that we are building product for 
Mm-hmm. And then, and then we, take, we, we take time and we make considered decisions. I mean, I think if you were to stand in one of our meetings, you know, halfway through, you'd be like, whoa, you guys still talking about this? <laughs> but we, get, we, we go over stuff a lot and we really like thrash it out and, and make sure we're comfortable and happy with it. So there's, there's kind of less left to chance, which means that when we do make bold decisions, like bringing scram knee protectors or um, an element jacket, we know that that is going to solve a unique problem for our rider. Mm-hmm. And if we're solving problems, genuine problems, then we're, we're halfway there. You know, then, then, we, then we package it beautifully. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you have it. So it, it's really about um, having that trailblazer attitude, putting design at the center of your organization. And, and yeah, and then and making bold decisions about what problems you're solving with your rider. And then they, they, they do come together in the end to seemingly kind of um, out their ideas. Well, there you go. <laughs> that answers <laughs> that. I suppose if anyone else yeah. is listening from another company, maybe you should... Uh... <laughs> So um, well, I, I wanted this the... is this is something nice to add though because um, y- you can have that stuff, but then you have to have the teams that can can make it happen. Yeah, and I mean... and and then that that's the special sauce that, that only you get internally. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can you can so you, it's often you think oh you know you need to be careful if giving away secrets, of course, and you don't you don't say too much. But at the end of the day, you you can you can have a product come on the market. And you can have another brand look at that and try and copy it, but they're, they're not maybe going to have the knowledge. They're not going to understand why those decisions were made. And then mm-hmm. they're not going to have a, a dynamic enough team to, to make those things happen. So, yeah, you see the product and that's one thing, but making that happen is when you have to have a pretty special, special organization internally that, that, that kind of makes that magic yeah. take place. So. Well, you're selling it, you know. <laughs> you're selling it. I'm, I'm just trying to cover up giving everything away. <laughs> uh, so I think one of the other things um, that I, I noticed and we, we've kind of had a few discussions about this as well um, and I've noticed it pop up on a bunch of other products and these kind of things just nip here and there is, is that the EU regulations around building clothing have changed a little bit in regards to abrasion resistance um, mm-hmm. and, and you know as a person that comes from riding off-road I would, I'll, I would probably say, and I don't think you're going to argue with this, that mm. most kit for off-road riding, like dedicated off-road riding kit, has medium to zero abrasion resistance. Like if you actually abrasion tested a set of motocross trousers, they're probably going to blow apart the first time you try and like yeah. drag them down the road. Yeah. And that's obviously, I think, I, I don't really understand where the line is of how you can sell kit that do you know that's a complicated conversation but to meet those regulations are you now having to design your own materials um and how how does that whole process go of suddenly having to design kit that can't get around this requirement for abrasion resistance yeah i think i mean the the ce regulations are are relatively new um and you i mean i think that C regulations, in, in my opinion, are, are a good thing mm-hmm. because they, yeah. they, weed out, they weed out bad product and brands um, primarily. So what you are putting on the market is, is safe and that's what, that's what we want. Um, and I think, um, I think, you know, going back to something like uh, Dirt, Dirt, just to add to Dirt collection, you know, that, that's another 
unique selling point for dirt because it is a C certified off-road collection. Mm-hmm. And it's like you say, you, you typically in the past you have um, off-road collections that that aren't aren't abrasion resistant and aren't protective. And okay, slower speed stuff on trails, yeah, less of a concern. But if you're doing highway or road section to a trailhead, then yeah, you're you're going to be exposed. So I think um, in that sense, um, C is good. You what what's what something like CE does is it kind of supercharges supercharges internal um brand knowledge um because you you have to react to this so you you have to you have to build internal capacity for as you describe solving things like fabric weak fabric issues or understanding if constructions are are good enough and um the brands that have embraced this fully um are the ones that that will bring out the best product in the end because uh, within C certification, you you do have notified uh, bodies where you you have a lab basically that certify stuff. It, it's it's not just in clothing; it's you know, it's in, in or workwear. It's in it's in everything. You know, you you design a, a teddy a toy teddy bear for a child that needs to be C certified to make sure that the eye doesn't pop off. You know, and choke a child. It's super important. And um, so that needs to be independently certified. And um, so. But the, the, the brands that have internal capacity and knowledge, like ourselves, we're able to then understand how we can react to those rules in a more creative and effective way and know where that fine line is. So you just don't over-engineer everything in a com- completely ridiculous way. You find a balance. So the, the reaction has been to, to basically build knowledge internally, and then, then that comes back in the, in the product design, essentially. I mean, with fabrics, you, you, of course, have to collaborate with fabric suppliers. Mm-hmm. You have fabric suppliers already reacting to CE regulations. They're, they're reacting to the documentation and they are building um, fabrics that conform to the different levels of abrasion, cut and tear. And they sell that to the industry and say, well, look, you can buy this off the shelf. So you can do that or you can also engineer your own fabrics in, internally as well, which becomes kind of proprietary technical knowledge, which only you have. You know, you look at somewhere like the North Face and they have their new future light membrane. Um, that's something they've built internally. And they say, okay, that's the membrane we're going to go forward with. So, you know, these sorts of things do build that internal capacity um, and allow you to innovate on a deeper level because you basically understand all the building blocks involved in, in making it and making a good product, or in our case, a good jacket or pant. So how, how different is it when you have a company like the North Face? Obviously, they're very much like a, a design company. They're mm. almost part of fashion now as a brand. Mm. Do you know, you see North Face on people walking down the high street in London as much as you would yeah. do in a national park. Yeah. Um, what, what's the difference between, and where, where do you think Revit falls on this scale of a company that are product designers in terms of like they're designing jackets but they're buying mm. the materials in and someone who's like going through that process of innovation like north face or patagonia or heli hansen like what yeah what, what's the difference between those and where, where do you think revit is as a company like that i think i think if you look at the north face if you take the north face as an example they're they're 50 years old so mm-hmm. revit's Revit, for example, is 25 years old, so they're, they're twice the age. So you're going to naturally see with a lot of these outdoor brands, you're going to see um, them further down that kind of that, that journey of, of building a brand and, and, a, and, and an organization. I think um, 
the the thing the the attractive thing about for example the north face is that they they do balance that kind of um lifestyle aspect technical aspect you you get a lot of confidence in the products you're buying because they are used by extreme users and they advertise that very well and that then feeds down into maybe their more streetwear orientated product which then is uh, has a greater um yeah, sensibility to fashion and i think that um I would say that Revit is is on a similar journey in that sense, where we we as a brand want to create lifestyles around the products that we build, and we know that. Um, I think the traditional way to look at riding a motorcycle has been, uh, you know, put on your black protective jacket and trousers and go for a ride out, and then come back and take all those clothes off and put your normal clothes back on. We want it to be far more integrated into lifestyles and we want to kind of live and breathe the bike on a, on a daily basis. And we want to build product that is is as comfortable. It Well, it, it is rider type specific. So if you talk about a more urban orientated collection, we want those products to move over into that urban space off the bike as comfortably as on the bike. I think if you look at dirt, dirt's another good example of how that's leading the way because it's... You don't, you maybe don't realize it straight away, but dirt has got a lot of like urban um, influences in there as well. Um, and that is something that you don't shout about because it's it's positioned currently within our explore off-road section, but it is still a product. Like I'll wear that element jacket, the one that's on the screen there, I'll wear that just on daily use. Mm. I might even consider going snowboarding in it. You know, it's just yeah. super flexible. I can take the protection out of that thing. I can wear protection underneath it level two mm -hmm. armor or i can just have the level one in the shoulders and elbows and just be like lightweight lightweight bikes in the woods so well I, for yeah, me I that think... was like one of the things that was most attractive about that whole collection was that it looked just like a nice jacket do you know the same yeah. as if you went to an outdoor store and bought a nice jacket and two-thirds of the time you wear it to the pub and one-third of the time you actually wear it when it's raining yeah know? exactly that, that was the same do you know i looked at it and i was like oh that just looks good it's not yeah. it's not a motorbike jacket if no one knew it was a motorbike jacket they wouldn't pick it out and go well you could do you know it's weird to wear that i don't want to be that guy that wears my dirt my like my dirt bike jacket to the pub i want to be a guy yeah. that just wears a normal jacket and I, I i from a personal style level thought that was really cool but yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that I think that's another one of those big design challenges, because even outdoor brands, I mean, you you, you don't want to lose um, the core DNA of of the industry you're building product for. So in this case, motorcycle, but you don't want it to be so moto that it becomes uncomfortable to wear in off the bike. So it's that fine balance. So, you know, if you look at a lot of our, our product design within dirt and the jackets, it's clean, but it's still strong. Like all of our design lines are quite sharp and architectural. Mm. You've got a lot of weight up high. You know, you've got the hood. You've got a very defined zip there with reflection, a popper reflection sitting beside it. So there is strength up high. It's a, it's a powerful looking jacket um, when you're riding the bike. But if you take the helmet off and you take the gloves off, it, it's still a strong jacket, but it's, it's not aggressive and it's not kind of mm -hmm. um, threatening in any way, but it still has a utility aspect to it. So... And I think um, that that is that fine line that you walk. And I think going forward, you you try and do more and more of that, and you you build lifestyles around uh, around your ideas and around your product design. Mm -hmm.
So I think one of the like the like circling back to where I started that um, I was mm. talking. We were talking about producing your own kind of product in-house so you're designing your own garments and i think yeah. the, the whole thing of c-flex so for those that don't know c-flex is revit's armor product essentially so mm. you make and you designed your own product you won an award for it a red dot design mm. award i mean i'm not in design world that much but my understanding is red dot design awards they're pretty substantial things to win like it's kind of a quite prestigious thing to win yeah and, validation and yeah exactly and and i think one of the more interesting things about this is that there are companies who are dedicated to this job that are really prominent big companies who make great products and you can buy them off the shelf and pretty much mm -hmm. every other clothing company in the whole market is buying in d3o sas tech something else similar um mm. so why did Revit do that? And how, how do you even go about that side of it? Like if you're generally designing products, how do you make that transition? Because this wasn't recent either. This was like, C-Flex has been around a while now. Yeah. So how do, they, how do they do that? Yeah, I, I think again, is in, we talked about it earlier. So you have a brand that places design at the center of everything they do. Mm -hmm. So you, have, um, you often have third, third party products that you, are kind of a little bit dissatisfied because maybe uh, it doesn't function to the right level or it doesn't, um, it's not breathable enough when you put it inside jackets or uh, maybe, you know, we don't feel like the design language is up to scratch. So I think you, you just, you make a bold, a bold decision to bring that knowledge internally. And again, it's a, it's a steep learning curve, but once you've gone through that learning curve, you, you're, creating a lot of power internally to to add to the, the quality of the product because you you gain so much knowledge um through through building that stuff that you can feed that into other parts of of the organization or 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 the product design you're also able to give more value to your customer because you're essentially cutting out the middleman mm -hmm. so if you, if you think that if you build stuff internally well you're not having to um put something that is essentially more costly into a product so if you if you build it yourself well it's it's you own it you have it coming directly to you from your supplier and then it goes into your garment and you're done so i think um i think it's about yeah it's it's just a, it's just a it's an attitude basically and it's it goes it's the same as any technology that you want to build internally whether it's a fabric or it's a membrane whether it's protection um it's it's about saying that you want to take this internally so you can then understand it in its deepest way and then you can improve it and then in the end that is going to improve your value to customer um offering and yeah that that that's essentially the the big difference when you start doing that stuff yourself mm -hmm. and you've also you've you've got to have an organization that has that kind of spirit of of uncertainty as well because of course it's not an easy path to take so there's <laughs> there's a lot no, of uncertainty imagine, along the yeah. way there's a lot of challenges and you know um, you know, a, a year project turns into two years, turns into two and a half, three years. And you're like, okay, yeah, that was uh, a little bit Pandora's box. But now we've got control of it. Mm -hmm. We can then really embrace that. And, and then you're able to, you will notice a lot with brands that you have a, a protection, um, a premium D3O protection in, in only a certain part of the collection. And then there'll be another protector in a, a lower mm -hmm. part of the collection. But we put C-Flex and C-Smart across everything. Yeah, yeah. So you go buy a Dominator jacket, you've got C-Flex shoulder and, and elbow protection there, all the way down to a more entry-level jacket like a Voltiat. 
-hmm. also has C-Flex. So it's really, you know, putting that protection at the core as well. Yeah. And so how much, um, I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but how much of that process when you, when you go to D3O or mm -hmm. SASTEC and, and, you know, those, especially D3O uh, over the last couple of years has become one of those quite marketable brands, a bit like Gore-Tex. They've really, they've positioned themselves well. They have their like iconic color scheme, a bit mm -hmm. in the same way C-Flex does. Mm -hmm. um, how much of uh, what you're paying for from them, the same as with Gore-Tex is like a license fee for the brand name. And how much do you see as like a product designer, that brand name having a knock-on effect on product sales? Yeah, it's, it does. I mean, if you just take um, a kind of a branded technology mm -hmm. as an example, and let's say Gore-Tex or D3O, in many cases, it does add a lot of, a lot of value to the, to the sale because people will, in some, in many cases, people will say, I'm wearing a Gore-Tex jacket. Mm -hmm. They won't say yeah. I'm wearing a Heli Hansen Gore-Tex jacket. Yeah, yeah it's a nice jacket, it's Gore-Tex. You're like... Where, yeah. What brand is it? That's oh, Gore-Tex. Yeah, it's Gore-Tex, yeah, Gore but where's, what's the brand? So yeah. there's, um, it, to answer your question, yeah, the, in many cases, the, the, the brand of the component is adding a lot of value. So if, if you were to, if you're to take, uh, let's say, something like D3O out of your collection, replace it with your own proprietary um, technology, you do need to focus a lot on making sure you tell the correct story to your customer. Mm -hmm. So that's when, of course, you have a strong marketing department and mm -hmm. they tell solid, honest stories around why this is a better decision for us. Because it's not, it's not shouting from the rooftop to say you're better than someone else. You're just justifying your decision because it's better for your product and your brand and your customer. Mm -hmm. I mean, you put D3O in, in some of these jackets and yeah, they, it, it would also perform very well. No, no, without a doubt. So, I you mean, know, it's like... There's, and I suppose like a, a good comparative example, like I, I don't yeah. want to make that come across like I was saying D3O is better. It's definitely not um, in terms of like the, the end use. Like one of the things yeah. I like about C-Flex is that it is really vented. Um, mm. Do you know? And you notice that, that and like if you compare it to a Sastec armor, it always really irritates me. Every jacket I have with Sastec armor, we live in a cold country. Until you wear it for 15 minutes, it's super uncomfortable. Like the pads yeah. all go in the wrong shape and then they have to warm up to take your shape. And that stuff's irritating. But I suppose like a really good comparable, I believe your boot has a Vibram sole as well, right? The, yeah. uh, and that's another good example of that using like a, a known quantity product to, yeah. to solve that problem and whether yeah. that uh, makes it more saleable just because it's got that that name alongside it. I think we've seen it with TCX as well. Uh, mm -hmm. In the last couple of years, they started making a boot with a Michelin branded sole. It's very good, but there's other mm -hmm. proprietary people making soles that are also as good. So how much, that was kind of my question. I don't want it to come yeah, across I think, like I was saying. No, you know? no, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> no, because I don't want to don't sort of sit here and down. I don't want to say anything bad about other protection brands because they everybody's doing like a super good job at, at building good quality protection and making sure it conforms to like the standards necessary i think i think in the end it's about um, making decisions on um who you collaborate with um in order to um instill confidence because i i think mm -hmm. that um a brand name uh for example vibram or gore-tex definitely supports the sale of a product mm -hmm. like we know that everybody knows that um 
but it's it's us making uh, also a very conscious decision that we uh, place our confidence in in that brand, mm-hmm. and we believe that that's going to give the the best possible offering to that that rider or that customer. Mm-hmm. And I think um, with something with something like um, uh, impact protection, because it's it's collection wide, it's a good thing to to bring internal because every single one of your products is going to benefit from mm-hmm. from that protection decision even to the point where you start to be able to have uh, future concept meetings around how protection will evolve and you those those discussions and evolutions happen much easier when you have control over that kind of building block essentially yeah i can i can imagine because you're not going is, to the supplier and then saying hey we've got this problem can you solve it and they come back and exactly like, oh, yeah, but it'll be like three years that i can imagine who, who like... owns the technology and you have very mm. complex non-disclosure agreements and everything so communication then becomes more fragmented and slightly harder so if you're taking something like protection it's collection wide so it's a no-brainer in a way for a brand that's orientated around protecting people whilst riding mm-hmm. if you take um, a vibram soul for example you know, at this moment in time, I think we've got three or four styles with a Vibram sole on it. So the the offset to bringing some that sort of technology internal based on the number of styles that use it is like going to be a yeah. big effort for yeah. a smaller. So in that case, you say, well, Vibram are super like uh, uh, supportive with collaboration and, and the, the mm-hmm. sole design is, our, is essentially our own tread. You know, we, we understand the way that the boot rolls when you when you walk. So that's affected the design line of the sole. So that's been a really rewarding experience. And then you have that VRAM stamp on it, mm-hmm. which is also like a certification of like a good outdoor sole as much yeah. as as much as it is for riding a bike. So I mean, the, the decisions are, yeah, well, nice definitely orientated around that. This is kind of one of my questions is to talk about your, your boot. But I imagine, you know, when you step into that new market, you've been designing jackets here and then you go, yeah. okay, we're going to design a boot now. The, the, yeah. the list of considerations, if you don't have a partner like Vbram to help you, must yeah. be enormous. Like I'd never even considered that how you place the tread is then going to suddenly affect how that boot performs when you're walking in it and when you're riding in it. Like obviously I'm not a product designer, but that's yeah. like – there's so many other things going on, protection and yeah. lacing and buckles, that yeah. that stuff must be really difficult. And if you've got a company like Vbram and go, hang on a sec, if you just do this and this, that's going to make that way easier. That's got to yeah, be really exactly. beneficial as well to, to start with. Oh, massively, massively. Because, you know, with something like the, the Expedition Boot, you know, that the, the goal with that was to create the, the ultimate adventure let's say adventure travel boot, adventure boot, mm-hmm. where you're balancing known protection with walkability because we know that that rider just wants to get off the bike and, yeah, walk places. Mm-hmm. So, you know, boots up until that point were very supportive and very protective, but maybe harder to walk in. So that's exactly as you describe. You know, you say, okay, well, uh, a supplier like Vibram allows us to collaborate on a sole and we can understand, like, what's the, what's the walk line on the tread? Mm-hmm. Um, of the sole, you know, in order to balance better the movement of the protective part. So it's all, you know, it's all coming together in kind of, kind of harmony. So um, I, I think that boot is also like one of those other products. And this, I think this podcast could sound a little bit like I'm just blowing smoke up your, uh, your ass a little bit because I keep telling you how clever everything is that you've done. But genuinely, like we did a review on it, and this was before you or I ever, e- even had any com- com- uh, conversation conversations. Conversations, yeah. 
uh, and when it came out, it was one of those boots. I was like, that looks super weird. It looks like a Stormtrooper yeah. boot. It's completely different. And then I got a set and I, I couldn't believe how progressive it was in the, the kind of approach to designing it. You know, I've been wearing motocross boots all my life. And then I started wearing road boots and I started wearing adventure boots and mm. they're okay. Do you know, adventure boots are okay, mm. but they're too, for a lot of kind of more difficult adventure riding, they're too soft they're not they're soft through the sole as well so mm. they're not comfortable if you ride off road all day they're they're just limited in, and 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 then along comes this boot and it's like super stiff and the sole's really stiff and it's waterproof and it's got a boa like buckle system for those that don't know a boa buckle system's kind of been around in other sports yeah. for a long time like i've had snowboard boots that have had boas on them for I don't know, 15, 10 years probably was mm. my first pair of Boa snowboard boots. And it's a great system. It works super well, but nobody mm. used it in mo motorbike boots. So obviously you talked a little bit about the the thought process, but how did you go and pick out these different elements and go, that's how we're going to solve that? Because there's such big leaps, you know, the, but mm. maybe to maybe to you they seem quite obvious that no one else has done this but why like why did you choose a boa over a buckle why did all of those decisions get yeah. made the way they were <clears throat> i think probably you're starting to see a bit of a pattern just through the conversations we've had already <laughs> yeah, where bit. it's um yeah it's it's about it's about observing and solving problems in the end because yeah. if you if you look at the if you look at the person that we've targeted for this boot it's somebody that wants to find that balance between riding and walking mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a more adventure travel way, basically. And we, we know that in the end, you're trying to balance um, protection and, and comfort. So you, you, you start to look at all of the steps in between and you start to say, well, and this is, I mean, uh, Mark, who, who designed this boot, like I was properly an observer of this whole process, but... It, it's it's an amazing thing to to see happen because you really you really kind of start with like a blank canvas again and you say okay everything that we we want to kind of shake off all the all the stuff that is already existing we want to say okay let's start this from from the beginning so you say well what's what's a really comfortable boot to to go hiking in and what's a really great uh, motorcycle boot to go riding in and how can we try and pull those two worlds together so you start to see like crossing over of technology so you see. Um, a boa closure, for example, that uh, up until that point was used probably in snowboard boots. Um, I would probably see like ski mountaineering, um, road cycling cy shoes, road yeah. cycling shoes, um, where um, there was there was a, a defined need for for it to be used there. And you say, well, then if you're going to use it in um, in an adventure boot, you need to you're, you're basically saying, well, we're going to we're going to chuck the buckles. And that's like one of the biggest things with the adventure boots was the buckles. But you start to say, well, this boot isn't orientated towards like hardcore MX riding. Um, mm. It's orientated towards like very active travel riding, so big bikes. So you say, well, the, the buckles in the end were becoming maybe a little bit of a hindrance because as you go through the day, if you're traveling, you want to maybe change how tight the boot is. You mm. want to have it super tight for some sections and you maybe want to loosen it off a bit or you maybe even want to lose it right off so you can walk in it a bit easier. So then you start to say, well, the adjustability becomes key. And then you start looking at other closure systems, and that's when something like BOA pops up. So the, the choice to go with something like BOA is understanding the different phases that that boot's going to go through 
uh, during the course of a day, a week, a year with a traveler. And then understanding that having maximum flexibility on how tight or loose you make that boot is super important, more important than having big ratchet buckles. So then you say, okay, we remove the buckles. And then you say, well, by removing the buckles, you then maybe get some advantages of not gathering a lot of dirt in those, on those buckles so the boot becomes cleaner. Um, uh, and, and then that's a positive thing. And then you start, to, uh, you start to say, well, about protection and then how do you balance protection? How do you walk? And we have this canting system. So you've got some flexibility in this direction and mm-hmm. this direction. So then you have a more comfortable walk line. But then you know that you have uh, stopped your, the, the flex, the maximum flex mm-hmm. enough to say, well, you're not going to damage your, your ankle or your, or your shin in the event of a crash. So, yeah, it's really about going back to uh, the problem and, f- and framing that problem properly and saying, OK, how are we going to react to that? And then the reaction is, of course, something like the, the expedition boot. Um, so with a product like that, oh, I'll just close this curtain. I'm uh, mm-hmm. getting blown out here. A little bit, so. Oh, there we go. That's not a good look either, is it? I've got that at the end of the camera. Uh, we'll cut that bit out. <laughs> there we go. Um, oh. oh, still got your curtain. Oh. All right. Well, that'll do. Um, so one of the other things, that, like with clothing design um, versus when you move into a product design like... Uh, a boot how how much of your uh your process is done on the computer in cad and how much of it are you sit sat in a room with a bunch of materials and just going mm. okay I, this is a sketch let's try and make that and see what it looks like yeah um, yeah it's it's often it's often case by case you know you, you have to you have to take each product and you have to approach the process of design and development um in a way that's going to give you the best chance of, of getting that thing right. So if you talk about styles that are evolutionary, um, you often begin that process with um, some screen time or some sketching or mm-hmm. maybe looking at different fabric combinations or trying to resolve some, some maybe some problems in there that are have, have maybe slightly weak functionalities that you want to improve. So you, you approach it in that way. If you're starting a, a product like we take the Expedition Boot as an example, which is really like blank canvas, then yeah, you sit down with a whole pile of stuff in front of you and you can make hand models, mock-ups, you mash stuff together, you cut up old boots, new boots, um, stick them together, you stick protection on, you just start to try and um, flesh out like a concept of functionality. Um, and then once you've got something that feels kind of like it's, you know, maybe in, in mock and then, of course, you've got sketches in there as well, because you want to in parallel, parallel to that kind of visualize the design vision in a way that you're kind of selling the beauty versus the kind of the, the function. And then you you will start to you'll start to kind of work towards CADs and um, SLS models and ride samples. I mean, ride samples are super important. You want to try and be able to build a functioning prototype that's safe to write in order to get writer feedback because you don't get to the end result of an expedition boot without putting thousands and thousands and thousands of writer kilometers on it to know that what you're bringing out is essentially, um, well, in our case, we've strived for perfection. So as perfect as we can possibly make it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a real mixture and it very much depends on the, the, the product design. If it's, if it's an expedition boot and it's starting from zero, you approach it from all different perspectives, mock-ups and everything. And then if it's an evolutionary style, it's a, it's in a way a simpler, more known process. 
So um, this is kind of just leading on from what you said there about putting it into into actual riders and getting them to test it. When you design clothing, yeah. how how do you get the fit to fit as many people as possible? How do you even make that decision whether this is going to be relatively slim fitting, this is going yeah. to be quite baggy? Because, you know, when you wear lots of different clothing and you try it on, every brand does this differently. Like typically say Climb have had yeah. a super relaxed fit, almost like oversized, you know, you buy a 34 trouser and it's more like yeah. a 40. And then maybe some of Revit's kit in the past has been a little bit more slim fit. Mm-hmm. What, where are you getting your base measurements from to decide these things? Is that like a, do you have models in house where you're like, oh, you're a relatively normal human. We'll base it off you. Or are you, do you have like, mod like uh, statistical models of large quantities yeah. of people yeah again a real mixture of stuff it's it's it can be quite complex you so you you sometimes approach the the fit um sometimes in region so if you mm-hmm. think about um us versus europe typically in europe we like slightly more fitted clothing mm-hmm. um if you go to the us they're much more orientated around a slightly looser more workwear fit so it can be region specific. We know that if you go to Southern Europe, especially um, Italians, they, they really like some really like trim fitting uh, motorcycle <laughs> trousers, but try and sell that to a US market and it, it just won't happen. So you, you start to see um, products taking on fits or orientated around region. For example, the off track is quite a slim fit mm-hmm. and it's doing very well in, in Europe and Southern Europe, but not quite so well in the US. If mm-hmm. you look at, the dirt collection, that's a, a much more kind of free ride active fit. And that's very much around um, a layering system. So each each piece will be um, patterned and fitted in a way that allows for a certain bike position, but also allows for maybe different layers underneath. And the end result is for a free ride application, it's a little bit looser and more free. And that's actually appealing very much to, to a US market. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to get to those, in order to get to those conclusions about what's the right fit, yeah, you, you do have fitting models and you have, you have a standard fitting model that comes in for every single fit. You have fitting mannequins. They're mm-hmm. like, their size is orientated around your brand guide, uh, design guidelines. And you also have standards as well. You know, you you also with us, if you look at our trousers, we often have a short, a medium, a short, a standard and a long leg Mm -hmm. because we know that there are lots of different heights. You know, if you look at um, uh, Dutch, Dutch population, they're much, much taller than, for example, an Italian. So, you know, in that case, we need to have a short leg and, and a long leg in order to cater for those markets. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's region specific. It can be um, style specific because each rider type has a different type, a different silhouette. If you look at I often think back to um, like snowboarding when I was buying Burton snowboard gear and you'd always have like those three different fits you could choose. You'd have like kind of the piste orientated stuff, then you'd mm-hmm. have like the free ride stuff, then you'd have the big mountain stuff, and you were always going from like a skinnier, more tailored fit yeah, all yeah. the way up to like super loose and baggy fit. And then yeah, you have yeah. like brands taking on a slimmer fit because they want to look more kind of mature and sartorial. Mm-hmm. And then you like have brands that are more orientated around free ride spirit. So their yeah, their yeah. fits are going to be bigger. So it's also very much kind of brand related. But you know, f- for us it's it's really a mixture of region and rider type. And, and making sure it, it, it basically works for that for that riding style. Yeah. So wh- where do you fall on that camp of snowboard gear? Were you like skinny, je- like the skinny jeans, super Euro look? Or were you like... 
I was never, I was never skinny because I'm already skinny. So I was only enhancing the skinniness. So for me, it was about, it was always about the kind of the looser free ride thing. Yeah, yeah. I was always into like off piste and, and freestyle. So yeah, yeah. with that, of course, came the, yeah, yeah. the looser, the looser gear. But I think what I, I think on a personal level, like what I love about dirt is that balance between the two. Because you, you know, when, when you ride a bike, you, you, you do want that jacket to not like flap in the wind or catch air, mm -hmm. but then you also don't want to be wearing something super slim and skinny, more like tour orientated. So mm -hmm. I think we found a nice sweet spot with, um, with the dirt collection. We've managed to find, make jackets from fabrics that are heavy enough that they feel stable and they give you a little bit of weight because weight is also a feeling of safety mm -hmm. and, um, versus um, something that's too heavy and tight or, or, or too loose and too lightweight. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a nice sweet spot. But, yeah, it was never, uh, never skinny for me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have the whole, like, pop-down visor, super tight trousers. <laughs> Hell no. Hell no. Hell no. It took me a long time to accept wearing a helmet. I mean, I was like, beanie and goggles. I was like, yeah. Uh, wearing a helmet snowboarding doesn't feel right it's <laughs> I, just not cool. I think it only took me a couple of concussions to realize that that might be a good move <laughs> yeah no for me also broken wrists yeah uh, discate shoulders <laughs> concussions yeah. yeah and you start to think okay I'm I'm kind of liking protection more and more. Yeah, yeah. I've reached that age where body armor is like a, a nice addition to, to reduce the pain. To fix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, as a designer that didn't, uh, you know, and I imagine, I don't know what it's like in Revit, but I imagine a lot of the people that work in Revit and most other motorcycle design like brands it mm. seems to be a really insular industry so everybody ends yeah. up working in a motorcycle company because they love motorcycles yeah. as someone that came from the outside so you came from outdoor clothing from gore what are the things that you find really odd and what are the things that you think motorcycle industry is doing super well i think um i think one of the i think coming from more outdoor um, orientated background, I think one of the things that I always struggled with was <clears throat> people's acceptance in the motorcycle world to just be miserable and cold. <laughs> yeah. It was incredible. I mean, I can remember super well when I did my, to my driving test for a motorcycle, you know, I was, I was lucky cause I was like wearing like the nicest Gore-Tex gear, but I was sit and of course expensive and there's, you know, there's, there, there are benefits to working for clothing brands in that sense. But um, I can remember sitting in this in Edinburgh in this porter cabin, you know, at the side of like the the test area with the cones and everything. And you know, we'd been out for a ride and it had been snowing. I did my my uh, test in the winter; it'd been snowing, and, I, and they had like this old kind of gas fire in the corner, you know, yeah. and, it, and everyone traipsed in and sat down, and the floor was getting all wet. And and uh, and I was sitting there, and I was like dry and warm, like super happy. I was like, yeah, let's get back out there. I want to just do more and more and more, and you know, super energetic around it. And everyone was sitting there, like cold and wet, and you know, hanging like their jackets over the radiators and trying to dry their boots and their socks in front, you know, just to get through the afternoon without freezing. But the conversation that was going on in there never went to how they felt uncomfortable and cold. It went straight to the bike. And they were talking about, oh, I just bought this, uh, this Yamaha, whatever, or I've just gone and spent 10,000 euros on, on, on this bike. And I was like listening to all these conversations and people that were taking their lessons there were so concentrated on getting the right bike that they almost forgot about the clothing yeah. and, how, and how, um, how much of an enabler it is for like 
extending your writing and, and, and having a lot more fun and feeling safer. And I was, I was like, this is bizarre. Like nobody at one point has said, oh man, I'm a bit cold and wet. I got to put that wet jacket on. It's never going to be dry by the afternoon. It was like talking about the bikes. And yeah. I, I always found that very strange. And I don't know whether that's because I've come from more of an outdoor and snow sports background that um, you, you become accustomed to really high quality, good gear, mm-hmm. even at mid range. And those brands have such a deep understanding on how to dress people in an effective way, you know, talking openly about merino base layers and the effectiveness of wool versus synthetics, you know, mm-hmm. all these sorts of things. These are these are discussions, but the discussions that are commonplace. And I and that was always something that, that really surprised me. Um, and I think that's maybe what attracted me so much to getting involved in this industry because I was mm-hmm. like so much good stuff can happen yeah. just by like being super open. And, and that's essentially why Revit is just so awesome because they embrace, they embrace it. Yeah. They, they just want, just want to just like crack on as quickly as possible at making stuff better. So, mm-hmm. and, and so on the flip side, what, what do you think that like, when you look in, what, what, like, what do you think that in general the industry is doing well, or are you sat there and you're like, uh, not really? Nah, <laughs> I think, I think the, I think over, I think yeah, may, maybe uh, it's because when you're designing stuff, you're always looking for problems to solve. Yeah, and maybe you, you become a little bit hypersensitive to way th- when things are done badly. But I think, um, I think what's been done well is 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 building is basically over-engineering product to make sure it, mm-hmm. it was safe. I mean, I can I can remember putting on a motorcycle jacket for the first time and thinking, wow, this feels heavy, but you know what? It does It does feel protective. I do feel quite safe in it. Yeah. You know, whether it was or was not, you don't know because there was no certification around it, which is what's so great about C certification now. But I do remember thinking, and like even my dad, um, he's been riding bikes his whole life, and I can always remember looking at him thinking, okay, I'm not so... I'm not loving this style so much, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but you do look like you're going to be safe if, yeah. if something was to happen. And also just making, making people visible in a really obvious way. I was always, you know, thinking, oh, that, that's pretty smart. I mean, a big yellow jacket yeah. on a windy road. Yeah. It's, I feel safe, you know, people can see me. So yeah, I think there's always been, I think the motorcycle industry has always been um, very good at making things um kind of safe and, and visible in that sense mm-hmm. and you know always being kind of rider centric and not yeah. getting lost in in silly ideas that aren't improving the the, the rider's experience on a that, safety level so. that was also a very polite way of saying that they're uh, <laughs> they'll they'll put bad style uh <laughs> they'll, they'll put good style below safety uh in the, in the process so uh, <laughs> yeah for shall we say yeah. form follows function yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, that's a better way of putting it yeah i think um yeah. i mean i don't know how how where like we we've never talked about this but where revit are in terms of like pretty much the only thing you don't make now is a helmet um mm. and i don't know i'm not even going to ask that question um <laughs> but i think one of the things like from my point of view that uh, as a person that does other sports that mm. motorcycle industry especially off-road is like really mm. progressive with is uh is helmet safety i think it's like it seems to be yeah. way further ahead in the yeah. last five years than every yeah. other sport uh apart from maybe like formula one because they're yeah. like crazy yeah. strong helmets but yeah, yeah. it's kind of in- interesting like when you talk about that safety element how progressive and especially we've had conversations about dirt bike riding where mm. i'm like oh yeah i wouldn't wear elbow pads because they're too hot 
like I'm not going to wear that, but I've got like the safest helmet. Do you know, this helmet is super good at stopping concussions. Then my snowboard helmet and my mountain bike helmet are basically just like small bits of polystyrene that probably don't do that much. Do you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's quite interesting that that's kind of your, your observation is that the safety side of it is, um, is quite prominent if that makes sense. Cause I don't really think of it like that, I suppose. Cause you're, you're inside it, um, a little bit more. Or yeah, I've always so. been inside it. Like I've, I, I was always like as a kid, a motorbike kid that did other yeah. sports. I suppose I'm still yeah. that now, really. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. This has been awesome, man. We're like a, an hour and fifteen minutes, and I think you've got to go in a sec. So. Uh, yeah, I've completely <laughs> lost track of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah super nice conversation. No, it's been fantastic. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to understand some of those those things, really, and and kind of, uh, yeah, just understand the process that you go through with with designing that that stuff because i i can't imagine that your your job i'm sure your job is super enjoyable and creative sometimes but also completely infuriating and limited yeah. by materials and what you're allowed to do and what the maybe even what the industry is ready to deal with do you know i'm sure we see a lot of that that sometimes new products can't don't do yeah. well or can't do well because nobody's ready to to receive it yet do you know yeah exactly and it's it's a really i mean it's just design in general is just mm-hmm. a lot it's just very nice to be in and it's you know it's it's super rewarding because you know when you when you launch things like expedition boots or dirt collections or mm-hmm. innovations in like you know double a hoodies and things like that for an urban application you just sort of sit back and you're like wow i can't I, I, sometimes it's hard to believe that we got to that point because it is such a journey uh, yeah, yeah. a lot of the time and like there is highs and lows always like it wouldn't be it wouldn't be fun otherwise i think you know have, having those extremes but I think, um, yeah, in the end, having like really kind of solid values as to why you're doing stuff are are the building blocks to mm-hmm. to just creating stuff that people really really like and, and appreciate. And I think you're kind of amplifying experience. You know, yeah, totally, I could admit yeah. I was riding riding home the other day on the highway, and I was like, it was raining. I was doing like 120. It was cold, and I was like, this stuff that I'm wearing. I wouldn't mm. be able to do this without this stuff. And it's, you, you like kind of smiling under your helmet thinking, this is cool. Like, I mean, I think that's possible. quite a transformative moment that you have. Like, I remember the first time I had like good enough gear that I rode down yeah. the motorway and it was hammering with rain and I was dry and yeah. warm. And I was yeah. like, I could do this all day. This is wonderful. I could do this all day. This yeah. is no, because I grew up with that experience you described. My first, uh, when I did my motorcycle test, it was exactly like you described. Like I had some gear, but it was terrible yeah. and it pissed rain all week. <laughs> We sat in like a proper British greasy spoon cafe having lunch, yeah. dripping wet, like, uh, and then no, yeah, you've no, got like, like four oh, hours really left. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I didn't really used to enjoy riding like in the rain that much on the road because it was just like it was a miserable experience until you get good enough gear that you can keep that water out and keep the air yeah, exactly. out. And, yeah, it's pretty being transformative. Able to, being able to step out, out your front door and yeah. have that sort of extreme experience you know yeah. i think snowboarding i'm like i don't snowboard enough i love it i love snowboarding but i've got to get to the mountains i've got yeah. to book a week off i've got you know and, yeah, and, yeah. and unless i just completely change my life and go and live on the doorstep <laughs> yeah. on ski slope um but with a motorcycle it's just sitting out there outside your front door ready for like <laughs> the next adventure yeah and that's what's super cool about it is it's, mm. it's it's there and i think it's going through a very exciting um, uh, growth phase at the moment, the industry, I think. Um, yeah, there's so many um, different types of people picking this thing up and 
running with it and putting their own stamp on it. I can remember being like really into fixed gear riding when I lived in London and just enjoying the more kind of artistic element to to that. And then, you know, looking to, to the courier scene and uh, track riding scene and mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff. And it's just the same within motorcycle. There's so many corners and there's something for everyone. And I think that's that's what's so liberating, so liberating about it. And, I, you know, I think it's going to continue like that. And to react, you know, with, with gear and nice gear yeah. is... is is a nice place to be, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you very much for your time. Cool. It's been awesome, man. You're welcome. Um, Thanks yeah. for having me. No, no having problem. Us, having Revit. <laughs> yeah, not at all. It's been, yeah, it's been really good. Um, cool, thanks. Here's to making good gear. <laughs> yeah, Cheers. let's do it. <laughs> that was fantastic, man. I really enjoyed that.